Talkers. Welcome to Speak and Destroy, episode 47. Speak and Destroy is a podcast about all things Metallica, and I am your host, Ryan J. Downey. My guest this episode is Biff Byford of Saxon. If this is your first time listening to Speak and Destroy, please, the best thing you can do for us right now is to go into Apple Podcasts or wherever your podcast listening platform of choice might be and leave us a five-star rating and a nice little review. Those really, really help. And don't forget to subscribe so you can see when new episodes pop up. Be sure to visit the archive to hear some of the great conversations we've been having over the last few years. People like M. Shadows from Avenged Sevenfold, Rob Flynn of Machine Head, Lizzie Hale of Hailstorm, Cliff Burton's sister, Connie Burton, a year and a half in the life of Metallica documentary director Adam Dubin, music video and film director Jonas Ockerland, Chuck Billy and Alex Skolnick of Testament, David Ellison of Megadeth, Andreas Kisser of Sepultura, and many, many more. Metallica played their second and third shows ever at the Whiskey-A-Go-Go, opening for Saxon. Lars Ulrich marked the 37th anniversary on Instagram, writing, For us at the time, this was like winning the lottery. Not only was this our first Hollywood gig, but in the early 80s, Saxon were one of the biggest, most exciting, and influential hard rock bands in the UK and Europe. All in all, an incredible night for Metallica. Saxon vocalist Biff Byford talks about that legendary night in 1982. He tells me about the metal scene of the early 80s, hanging out with Lars in 2007, performing Motorcycle Man with Metallica at the 30th anniversary shows. We talk about British humor. We talk about his 2019 heart attack and his debut solo album, School of Hard Knocks. Remember, you can follow Speak and Destroy on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. You can also follow me at Ryan Downey on Twitter and at SuperheroHQ on Instagram. And now, here it is, my conversation with Biff Byford of Saxon. This is Speak and Destroy. a little bit about Speak and Destroy. I'm a longtime journalist. I've been a reporter for MTV and The Hollywood Reporter and Billboard and a number of publications over the years. And I am also a massive fan of Metallica and all of the branches that feed into Metallica and have come out from Metallica. So, uh, and it's conversations with people who uh, have been influential on the band or the band has influenced or have had some direct or inconnect, indirect connection. So, yeah, over the last couple of years, I've had, uh, you know, guys from Diamond Head and Anti-Nowhere League. And, of course, Biff Byford from Saxon was right on the top of my wish list when I started putting this together. So, very, very happy to have you on. Okay. Tell me a little bit about going back to the early 80s. Uh, I know Lars has mentioned in interviews before that he had an opportunity to see Saxon perform in Brighton in 81. And I actually looked that up. It looks like that show was October 7th of 81. With the Denim and Leather Tour, I believe. Yes, yes, the Denim and Leather Tour. And uh, he, he claims that he was able to get backstage. And I, I, my question to you is, do you have any recollection of, of that or of, or of meeting a teenage Lars Ulrich at that time? I have no recollection of that, but that doesn't mean to say he wasn't backstage. Uh <laughs> No, I don't know. Maybe maybe it was one of the, uh, you know, 30 or 40 people that was probably back there after the show. Um, but no, he didn't, um, didn't come forward, I don't think, and introduce himself. And it wasn't that much later, just a few months later, uh, that towards the end of March in 82, when, uh, you know, rather famously, Saxon at the Whiskey Go-Go with Metallica and support, uh, at what was their second performance ever? Uh, do you remember anything about how they were chosen to perform on the bill? And and uh, do you remember? Well, I, I think I think Lars knew a girl that worked there. Mm. That's what Lars told me. Anyway. He knew a girl that worked there and blagged himself a gig. <laughs> I mean, uh, some members and. Um, Say that we were sent cassette tapes, but that load of bullshit. That wasn't. 
nobody sent us any tapes, uh, especially Metallica. So, um, yeah, I think he blagged a gig, you know, like you do when you're first starting, you know. Probably said, you know, we'd like to play and put us on. So that's what the girl did, obviously. So, yeah, they did two shows. We did um, four shows and two days. We did a underage show, uh, and then we did a, a, a show for 21 over. It set the scene for me a little bit for Saxon at that time. What was happening in the band specifically uh, for you in America? You know, was this were these important we were, shows? We were to you? sort of uh, yeah. We had we had some problems um, with the record company with Wheels of Steel. They didn't really um, uh, print a lot of vinyls for some reason. They did twenty five thousand, and rest of the sales were all on imports. I, I don't know if that's the way they made money. The French back then, so it was a French independent label so i don't know maybe they wanted all the money in in um, in sort of uh, french french money i don't know but they only printed twenty five thousand in america and the rest of the sales were on import from france so messed us up a little bit um but yeah i remember we went out with which was our first tour of america we did um we did like half of their tour through the southern states Midwest, and then we played the whiskey, which was probably our first show in LA, I think, mm. because we didn't do uh, we didn't do the West Coast of Rush. Um, most of our touring was in the Midwest in the early days. So yeah, I remember, uh, you know, it was like a who's who of uh, LA bands at that show. So we were pretty, um, we were pretty jet lagged. One and two, we were pretty, uh, you know, over over sort of. Um, Really, I mean, Ozzy Osbourne came with Sharon, and you know, I don't know if Lars remembers that, but uh, they were at the show watching the dance. Oh, wow. uh, so yeah, it was um, you know, Motley Crue were there, uh, you know, Rat were there because they were on one of the days sporting. Uh, there was loads of bands. I think Don Dockham was down there. You know, a couple of guys from Kiss were down. So it was like it was, you know, it was just like a who's who of. Uh, yeah, a bit of a bit, bit of a, a snapshot of the hard rock and metal royalty of, of the Sunset Strip. Oh, well, we toured with Ozzy um, previous to going there, and he, he, he toured he toured with us on on his first album, Blizzard of Oz, and um, you know it was the special guest to our European tour, so we got to know him quite well, him and Sharon. So yeah, they just came along, and. Uh, yeah. I remember watching Alex from the top of the stairs because the stairs used to be these old rickety stairs at the back. Mm-hmm. Uh, Still there. Like an old... <laughs> yeah, but it's been modernised since, I think. But um, yeah, so we were stood up there, listened to the band, you know. I think I watched their afternoon set, not their evening set. Uh, so yeah, they're pretty good. And, you know, they struck me as being a, a new band, you know. Yeah, and at that time, like of course, else. Uh, the, the vast majority know. of their set were. Diamond Head songs, <laughs> which probably was rang familiar to oh, the, the first Saxon. was Diamond Head songs, wasn't it? I mean, they were, they were an American Diamond Head at one point, but um, yeah. yeah, it's fair enough, you know. It's uh, a great songs. Uh, what can you say? And uh, you know, they covered them, and uh, they did fantastically well with them, didn't they? Indeed. While the band was, you know, playing in Los Angeles for the first time, I think it's important for people listening to understand that Saxon was very established back home in the UK. I mean, you know, that run of records, uh, you know, particularly Wheels of Steel, Strong Arm of the Law, and Denim and Leather, those were very successful albums over there, I believe. Um, Gold and Platinum, even, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, so that yeah, was... yeah, I think um, I think by the time we did the whiskey, I think um, you know, we were about ready to start making some inroads into America. We were getting quite a lot of airplay. Um you know, in, in the rock stations. So, you know, we could have um, we could have broke quite big at that point, but um, you know, due to whatever reasons, we didn't. I mean, we always used to play. I mean, our big gig in um, in Los Angeles, for instance, was Santa Monica Civic. Mm, That's what yes. we played. You know, we we went straight from the whiskey to quite large venues, really. But um, yeah, it was a good time. You know, we sold out four shows in two days. Great bands in there. You know, it was a great time. I remember the Blues Brothers show being on um, down the road, you know, at the same time. 
So, <laughs> nice. yeah, it was, it, was, it was cool, you know. It's our first time we've been to L.A., actually. It's funny, I'm actually looking right now. There's a review in the local paper that's made it to the Internet from 1984 of that show at the Santa Monica Civic. Uh, it's pretty cool. All right. At that gig, you know, that would have been, of course, that original live lineup of James and Lars and Dave Mustaine and Ron McGovney. Um, do you recall anything yeah. about them personally? Did you get an opportunity to to talk at all? And, and no, not- I didn't. I didn't. I didn't. I didn't talk to them. I, I didn't get a chance to talk to them. Um, that we might say, we might have said hi, but I didn't have a conversation. We were just we we're probably too busy, mm-hmm. you know. And they would have they would have got their gear in, you know, put it on stage, played the gig, and then get the gear off stage as quick as possible. You know that that was the deal. You know, still is the deal for bands that open for, you know, for other bands. So I'm sure they were quite busy, and then they probably went to the bar and watched the show. I'd imagine. You know, and uh, probably watched our show and then went off and wrote some fantastic songs. You know, that's what I would have done. <laughs> um, do you remember yeah. when you first had occasion to, to really get to talk to them and hang out a little bit and, and, and of course, learn uh, what a massive influence Saxon had been on the entire band and, and Lars? Uh, no, we didn't. We didn't get to talk to them for a long, long time. Um the first time I really talked to them was uh, at a festival in in Germany in 2000 and I don't know 2007 2008 I think. Oh wow! And that's the first time we we sort of got to talk to them and uh, and we we talked. They came to see us on stage. We were just going on stage at the big festival in Germany, and they were headlining. And um, yeah, they came to see. We went to see them play and spent some time in the cage. You know, just on the stage there, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, and then we we said bye, and I went back to the hotel, and then I got a phone call from Lars saying, uh, "I'm coming over. Are you still up?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm still up. I'm still up, and um, over, and we talked for four or five hours till the early morning about the old days, and uh, you know how, they, how we influenced them, and what his favorite songs were, and all about the eighties and the seventies, you know, with Maiden and all the bands that were around, and um, since then we met loads of times after that. But uh, it just, we just weren't in the same circles for a long time. Yeah, wow, to be a fly on the wall. And, that... and, and they never they never covered a Saxon song, so, you know, the the song connection was never there, if you know what I mean. Uh, yeah, uh, bit, bits and pieces, right? Like sometimes they'll jam a little bit of Princess of the Night or... Heavy metal thunder or something. Yeah, they jump a little bit on stage now and again, you know, just to to let people know that they were, you know, we we were influenced, uh, you know, that they we influenced them. But um, they never covered a song on on album. There's still time though; they can still do it. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) And uh, yeah, yeah, and that's uh, they can do a great rendition of Princess or you know uh, or uh, Motorcycle Man or something. Motorcycle Man, of course, and yeah, so I believe it was in Paris, uh, probably then just a couple of years after that, that uh, you and Lars got to hang out and, for, and talk for several hours, uh, where you got up and did... Well, uh, yeah, I met his mum and dad as well. Uh, oh, wow. You know, the whole, everybody was there, really, and, and I met the other guys as well, you know. Um, but, um, yeah, he, he, he phoned me up and invited me to the gig, and I was living in France at the time, so I went down there, and uh, I, nobody said, um, you know, I was going to sing or anything. I just got there, and he said, um, do you want to sing a, a, a song? I was like, uh, they had a room set up. You know, they have a room set up on every every show to uh, rehearse before the show. And uh, we rehearsed Motorcycle Man, and, uh, yeah, I sang it with them, which was, uh, yeah, it was great. Like, I didn't expect it. It was great. I wasn't, you know, I was just, I was just dressed in my sort of... Uh, you know, chilling clothes, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, you didn't but have yeah, your stage great. gear as it was. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's very cool. Uh, and then, yeah, it was then just a couple of years after that when Metallica did their 30th anniversary shows in San Francisco and, uh, you know, had, um, you know, a tremendous number of guests uh, from all across the spectrum and all around the world, really. And I know you sang Motorcycle Man with them again. What can you tell me about you know, getting the phone call to, to come participate in those shows and, and what that whole experience was all about. 
Yeah, he, he phoned me up, uh, said, you know, we've got a, a 30th anniversary show at the, at, the, at the place in San Francisco, Fillmore, was it? And um, I, I was like, no, I can't do it, we're touring. And uh, we looked at the dates, and actually I had a day off. <laughs> so um, I said, look, I've got a day off. If you fly me in, because you arrived the same day, right? I'll come over, we'll do the show. So I arrived the same day, uh, drove up to their um, to their headquarters up there in uh, San Francisco, and then we rehearsed it again. And, uh, yeah, it's... Uh, I did the show that night and flew back the next day uh, to Poland. Wow. It was pretty, uh, <laughs> pretty incredible trip I did. The funny thing is, when, I, when we were rehearsing, uh, and, um, you know, they said to me, uh, are we playing it tonight? Because they'd already played it in Paris, yeah. And I was like, no, actually, you're not playing it right. <laughs> and uh, I sang them the riff. <laughs> so, and they were like, yeah, you're right. Actually, you're right. We weren't weren't playing that, so um, it was a little bit more, a little bit harder riff than they were actually playing. Actually, uh, it's a Paul Quinn riff. It's really, really quirky. Oh, that's so it great! Was perfect on on the night. So now they know how to play Motorcycle Man perfect. So that's cool. Yeah, we should move on now and uh, and do uh, Heavy Metal Thunder. That's a doozy as well. <laughs> I, I I I would love to see a Metallica single that's those two songs together uh for for everyone's sake yeah yeah it's difficult enough when a band member you know is committed to something during a tour on a day off and you know the the poor tour manager running around worried if well if i hadn't done it i would have i would have read it you know and uh i mean i'm nuts anyway so it was a nutsy thing to do, and I actually got back sort of an hour before I walked on stage, so I was really tired that night. Uh, <laughs> luckily, it was a day off the next day, so you know, I was. And they they gave me uh they gave in the hotel room was a bowl of fruit, you know, and uh, said so I went in, dropped my bags off, and then went straight to the gig, you know, and there's a bowl of fruit, and um, I thought, oh, that's a nice bowl of fruit, and I, I went to the. Um, I went to the to the to the gig, did the show, and uh, I think it was either Lars. I think it was Lars, or, or I don't know if it was Lars. One of the other guys said, uh, "Oh, did did you get your uh, did you get your fruit?" I was like, um, "Yeah, thanks a lot." <laughs> and then I went when I got back to the hotel. I, I looked in the fruit bowl, and there was a there was a brand new iPad in there. I hadn't, I hadn't seen it, you know. So it was great. A really nice present. Yeah. Oh, that's so great. Yeah, uh, yeah. When I when I had Animal from Anti Nowhere League on the show, he, we were talking about that same week and him coming up and singing with the guys. And yeah, he said that he was in the hotel room with his wife and he was going, "Oh, you know, I've got to I've got to brush up on the lyrics." And um, and his wife says, "Well, there's <laughs> there's an iPad in this fruit basket." <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So yeah, it was the same yeah. you know, surprise. <laughs> no, it's good. Oh, that's great. Um, well, what do you think it is about Saxon and the whole sort of new wave of British heavy metal movement then that, you know, had such a lasting impact on obviously Metallica and the uh, band think, spawn there? Yeah, I think, I think, uh, I think particularly Lars when he came to see us, I think, um, cause a lot of, a lot of bands in America were into what was happening in, in H.A. And a lot of a lot of young musicians and you know young young singers were looking at what we're doing, you know, like the guys in Skid Row, Metallica, and you know different bands around, you know Bon Jovi as well, all those bands. Looking what's happening, and I think they thought, yeah, you know that that's a fantastic thing. And I think I think maybe the Metallica guys were drawn to our faster, more aggressive songs, Heavy um, Metal Thunder, and you know Princess of the Night, Twenty Thousand Feet. Really fast, aggressive, you know, rock songs, uh, singing about life, singing about, you know, chilling, singing about driving fast. And uh, I think they um, they caught on to that, really. And that, I think that, you know, Saxon, Motorhead in particular, playing that sort of fast, you know, aggressive type 
rock music, I think that's really where the thrash thing sort of came from, you know. Now, I'm always impressed whenever I've seen videos or, you know, any time that you've performed live in recent years by how great your voice sounds. And I, I can only wonder, you know, because we haven't had much of an opportunity for extreme metal bands to, uh, you know, continue into their 40s and 50s and beyond. You know, we're just now really seeing that with a lot of bands. What do you attribute that to being able to still have those chops and that prowess and being able to sing all those songs with that with that kind of power and command? I think, um, I think, because I've been consistently singing for 40 years, basically, so I think my uh, voice muscles are um, very strong, if you know what I mean. We don't really, I don't really have a lot of time off. Well, I have just recently, but um, I don't really have a lot of time off. Uh, so my, my muscles are, you know, it's in, they're in excellent condition. And uh, I haven't really opened my throat over the, over the years, if you know what I mean. I haven't really... I haven't, I haven't really had a drug problem or a drink problem. I was very lucky. And, um, you know, so I haven't burnt my throat or drank, you know, neat Jack Daniels and, like, you know, moonshine or whatever. You know, I haven't done that. So I suppose my vocal cords say condition. Knowing a little bit about your, your early life, it's just reminding me when, you, you know, it's something you and I both have in common, actually. You know, I've read that, that your mother passed away when you were 11, which my mother passed away when I was that exact same age, and that um, mm. your father did struggle with alcoholism. My father struggled with alcoholism as well. And I think there is yeah. something about those two things in particular. I mean, I can I can trace back every, every uh, relationship, every friendship, every professional situation, you know, just about everything in life, I think, can be, in some ways, were ripple effects from those two significant formative things in life. Did you did, did you find that your experience has been similar? I mean, I, I think one of the reasons I have never had a problem with drugs or alcohol is because I had such a <laughs> example of what not yeah, to I, do. I, I, yeah, I think I think when you see that when you see the um, when you see the flip side of, uh, you know, alcoholism and, you know, drug abuse, because I've seen that as well, it, it, it's it's a dark, you know, it's, it, it, on the face of it, people seem really happy and, you know, they're getting high and they're getting drunk. But actually, behind the scenes, you know, when somebody's uh, addicted, there's a lot of problems behind that. You know, with family, friends, and basically your sanity. I, I just think that you know it, it's sad that that uh, people do get addicted to things, but uh, in reality, it affects a lot of people. It's not just them. You know, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of damage done through it. So you know, people live with it, and uh, you know, they get help by. Um, friends and things. It's like when somebody dies, you know, when you when you your mother when you're young, it has a big effect because you're, you know, everything goes uh, a little bit unbalanced. If you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. And you have to try to get the balance back. I think, and uh, and I think the way you do that really is 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 not to go into things like, you know, if your father was a big drinker, you've seen the you've seen the dark side of that. So. You, you know, you don't go there. You don't want to be like that, you know, collapsed on the floor behind the door so you can't get in. You know, it's like, it's just, it's just terrible, you know. So I suppose you don't really go there subconsciously. Indeed. You know. Yeah, it's a lot of, uh, yeah, I, like you said, subconscious decisions that, that you find uh, kind of guiding you as a result. And yeah, yet, I don't think conscious. I don't think you consciously do it. I just think such a, uh, you know, a sort of bad period. I think it just affects you. One of the things that we also have in common, obviously, is uh, music, you know, kind of swooping in in those formative years as well and acting as, as balm and catharsis and all the other great things that, 
that music can do. Um, I'm curious, you know, prior to Saxon, you know, I believe you had a little bit of experience in the psych rock scene. What can you tell me about about that and kind of what was going on there in the in the seventies and so forth as you were? Yeah, what rock? Sorry, uh, like the psychedelic, what? like the psychedelic type scene. Oh, uh, you mean the prog rock side thing? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, we were in the we were into the in me and Paul were into prog rock uh, quite a lot. Um, we just like the musicianship of of the quality. You know, I used to, I was playing bass then and singing, so I was listening to uh, you know Chris Square and people like that, and Felix Papalardi in Mountain, and you know the Genesis uh, bass player and Jack Bruce. So, so I was into all that sort of improvisation and um, you know pushing pushing your musical ability to the limit a bit. Um, I wasn't I wasn't a brilliant bass player, but you know I could play. Um, we used to jam Yes songs and Skin and you know, some of their crazy, crazy time signatures. So, you know, we were a three-piece band, me and Paul together, before we joined. Uh, so, yeah, I was into that. And, you know, I still um, I still like prog rock. Well, to be able to even keep up playing any of that stuff, particularly in a trio, I mean, you had to have had <laughs> some degree of skill. <laughs> Some of the most difficult. We were quite, yeah. we were quite, we were quite hand on the string. I mean, Paul still is, uh, you know, but I sort of um, stopped basically, and I just play for, I just write songs now and play for pleasure, really. So as uh, you know, you formed the band that eventually became Saxon. Now, of course, if you start a heavy metal band, you have, you know four decades, five decades, I guess, we're coming up on the like the 50th anniversary of the first Sabbath record. You've got a lot to study and get into and draw from. But, you know, in those formative years, you know, where was that inspiration coming from? And how, how do you, how, how, how would you explain, I guess, sort of oh, the I, development of, of how Saxon sound came to be? I think, I think of, uh, uh, initially, it was a mixture of prog and blues, I think, with a bit of Deep Purple thrown in there and Zeppelin. So, you know, we were very, we were very, you know, I played bass and guitar in a blues band when I was when I was a teenager, and um, you know, we were very, uh, you know, we were very into the blues, and that's what we played. That's what everybody played. Um, but as we got better, play fast, fast music and. Nobody was playing fast music. I suppose the punks were playing fast music. Uh, you know, Motorhead were playing fast music. Um, there was a few other bands along the way, but most of the stuff was like very blues-based and very jamming. You know, like um, you know, we loved Uri, we loved Purple. You know, we loved all those bands. But um, you know, that wasn't wasn't what we uh, wanted. Create something a little bit more a bit more exciting, if you know what I mean, not just based on musicianship, if you know what I mean. You know, we didn't have a, a Richie Blackmore or a Eddie Van Halen type of guy in the band, although our guitarists are and were fantastic. Um, we just didn't have that charismatic figure of, of a guitarist like in their mainstream or, you know, somebody like that. The gang it was more of a team band, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So uh, we were all basically equal uh, together, really. So, um, so that's what we created. We created a, a sound that was more uh, band orientated, and we played uh, as fast as we possibly could. And uh, I, I wrote lyrics about things that um, interested me, you know. Indeed, and that is obviously continued. And uh, I want to talk a bit about, uh, of course, uh, your first ever solo record. What can you tell me about the catalyst for that, you know, and what made now the right time to put that together, and, and what were some things that you wanted to explore that maybe wouldn't make well, sense? I've been, I've been thinking about it for a while. I mean, Nigel has a solo album, and Nigel, the drummer, put a solo album out a few years ago, and uh has got a splinter band thing going, they've got an album out, so... I thought, yeah, why not? You know, we've just, 
Well, on our 40th anniversary uh, shows, and after that we were having a, a bit of a break, or we thought we were having a break, um, <clears throat> so it didn't it didn't get in the way of any Saxon product. So, so yeah, it's um, it's just a natural thing to do, really. Just release it. Obviously, I didn't expect to have a heart attack, but um, you know, <laughs> it was it came out anyway, so which is pretty cool. You know, you assembled uh, quite a group of players for the record uh, with with quite a pedigree. Um, what can you tell me about how? Yeah, how I, had that lot, came I had a lot of people. Uh, that wanted to play on the album, but I didn't want to make it a sort of who's who of guests on the album, you know, because, you know, some some solo albums are like, let's get everybody that's famous on the album. And, yeah, uh, it looks like a compilation then, more than a solo and, album. And then we'll sell more copies. And I don't think it always works like that, but, um, no, I, I asked a few people, you know, Phil, Phil played solo for me, Phil's big mate. Um, but, you know, it, it didn't really matter to me. I mean, I think the songs are cool anyway, so you know it was only it was only guitar solos anyway. You know, I just asked a few people to play guitar solos on that. And I know, uh, you know, you've uh, rather famously have an interest in. Uh, you know, I know the record talks about. You know, there's there's stuff about the Inquisition, the Spanish Inquisition, and lots of kind of historical and and literary type themes. Uh, where does that? Yeah. Where does that interest come from, and, and what other ways do you uh, sort of get that fix outside of music? I, I like history, and um, the, the thing is, it's basically war or revolution or something going on there. Um, so, uh, you know, it's, it's, a huge, um, it's a huge pot, you know, that you can keep going into and, and getting out great uh, subject matter. You know, it's um, it's one of those things that I, I like history. So, you know, the lyrics that I write, you know, I try to paint pictures with the lyrics, and um, yeah, it, I, I like it. I mean, I like I like sci-fi as well, so I write about that as well. So, you know, it's just I don't think there's any um, on the solo album. I don't think there's any subjects on there that that I haven't touched really. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a love song on there. It's a retrospective song, two retrospective songs, really. There's a song about how I feel about life, black and white, you know. So it's um, it, it's uh, it's one of those um, one of those things, really. That um, you know, when when you're thinking of a and they pop into your head, there there's always ideas that interest me, like you know, driving fast or history or you know, going to gigs, the audience. It's just one of the that's the sort of lyrics I write, you know. And you mentioned the heart attack, which of course wasn't planned and is never planned. How are you feeling these days? You know, a few months uh, after the surgery. And... I'm pretty good now. I'm stronger every every week. You know, I'm singing uh, singing along to some uh, some uh, live recordings we made with the vocal. So I'm singing along to the songs. I'm singing the solo album as well. So. Uh, yeah, you know, everything's going okay, you know, fingers crossed. Um, I mean, it wasn't a Hollywood heart attack. You know, it was just a, just like a little bit of a, uh, a feeling uh, when I was exercising in my chest, really. A bit like a cold, you know, like of a tight, bronchial cold, you know. Uh, so, yeah, that's what it was. And uh, I lived with it for a couple of weeks, and uh, it started getting worse, and... So I went to the doctor and he sent me straight into hospital. So I was in hospital. I was like the sickest guy in there. You know, I was like, <laughs> like I didn't, I didn't look sick at all. You know what I'm saying? So, so eventually they found it, found out what it was. I still remember you posted the picture of the the cup of tea and toast, and that was like the that was the sign that all was well. You were, you yeah. were on the end. <laughs> That's all I could eat really. I couldn't eat anything else. Uh, but um, yeah, you know, it's a massive. Uh, it's a massive operation, you know. They obviously they cut you, cut you in two, really, don't they? So it's a massive operation, and uh, it takes a, a, quite a while to come back from that. But uh, I'm, I'm on the good, uh, I'm on the good track, so everything's going well. Do you have any advice for those of us who, you know, I, th- I think it's a very male thing, especially. It's a you have a tightness in your chest, and you go, ah, it'll go away. Well, I, I think <laughs> the thing is, though, you know, it's 
people don't a lot of people don't have these Hollywood drop dead heart attacks. You know, mm-hmm. they have they have like a, like an indigestion feeling maybe mm-hmm. that you know that that stays there for quite some time. You know, I can only put it down to the fact that you feel that there's something not right. You know, and uh, you should definitely go and get it checked out. Because it's 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 a human thing. Is that's what I thought. It's nothing that will go away. But you know, it didn't go away. So you know, you have to uh, face up to it that there's something not right there, and get down to the doctor or war hospital. You know, yeah. whatever you have to do, really, because it's better somebody say, you know, you've got indigestion. It's not a heart attack, rather than you saying, oh well, you know. I died basically, and uh, you know, if only I'd have gone, you know, and I wouldn't have. Uh, yeah, that's the ultimate case. Now. Now. So yeah, yeah, I think I think you have to go. You have to go there and uh, and see because you know that's what hospitals and doctors are for. You shouldn't you shouldn't be thinking that you're wasting their time. You should go in there with anything really, like you know, like um, if you've got any cancer problems, you know, your prostate gland and things like that. You should go in and get it checked because, although it's not nice, it's 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 a procedure that everybody has to go through at some point in time. So, you should definitely have it done. With my advice. Indeed, That's, and great advice. And yeah, the kind of the ultimate case of better safe than sorry. That's well put. I better say, most people don't want to be a bother. Right. Most people think that there's a lot of people that are sicker than they are, so they're not going to go in. They leave that to the really sick people. But you might be really sick and you don't know it. So that's why you should go in and see your doctor then. So I would imagine, you know, going through something like that changes your perspective about how you want to make use of the time that you have. What would you say has changed um, the, the most for you? Um, not not a great deal because I was, in, I was having a pretty good time before. <laughs> but, you know, I was like, uh, yes, yes. you know what I mean? It, yeah. It's not... Uh, it changes your family, I think, uh, mm-hmm. how they how they see the future. If you know what I mean, it changes their outlook, and everything's not so safe and secure anymore. I think you have to try and live with that. Uh, so yeah, I think um, you know when something like that happens, and you you you're in a family in a family relationship, then it affects them massively. You know because it comes as um, I mean, it's different if you're if you're like if you've been sick a long time. But suddenly, like to have a, a, a really bad illness, it's um, it's a shock for people, and uh, yeah, they're, they're coping with it well, you know. And um, it's good; we just have a good time and uh, carry on, really, and uh, you know, make sure all the all our children are doing well. You know, that's what that's what our job is, I suppose. Uh, so what does promoting and celebrating the solo record uh, look like? I think it's getting some airplay in America, actually, on uh, on some stations, so that's surprising. Uh, School of Hard Knocks is uh, getting great great plays, actually, on uh, rocks, rock radio around around Europe and in America. So, yeah, we'll just keep our fingers crossed, and uh, maybe I'll bring the solo tour to America. That would be great. Oh, that would be really great. Yeah, that would be amazing. Yeah. But you know, it's it's a talking plane uh, show. You know, I'm talking. They're quite small, intimate venues. I'm in, and uh, it's um, it, it's um, yeah, it's like a, an evening with you know, very intimate. And then we're gonna, I'm gonna be talking about the old days and you know, doing stories. I've got a friend of mine called Don Jameson, a comedian. Oh sure. On that metal yeah. show. He's He's coming over, and we're going to do like a going to be like a talk show type set. Oh, that's great! And we're yeah. going to maybe include the audience, and so yeah, and we'll have a little break, and then the band will come on. We'll do a full uh, a full on uh, metal rock show, you know. Nice, yeah, I love those evening with uh, scenarios. I think that that environment, yeah. uh, you know. At this point, we've all been to enough shows it, with five bands doing. Yeah, I think if you keep on to like you know. Four or five hundred people, and it works. So then it's it's a little bit difficult, you know. And then you end up being a stand-up comedian. 
<laughs> right. But in your case, you're bringing the man with, with you. So well, you I probably could, made yeah. a lot more money doing that because it only did me. Yeah, a lot more money and a, and a, and so, a, lot, a lot less overhead. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. It's only any light show, no PA, one <laughs> microphone, that's it. Great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine a stand-up comic travels with too much road crew for that matter. Well, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I mean, I would say they have to have material and they have to deliver it well. But, hmm. uh, you know, I always, I always watch these, uh, you know, comedy DVDs where the one guy's playing in an arena with like, you know, 30,000 people, you know, $100 a ticket. It's like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. One guy, one girl. That's a great last little bit of subject matter here that you opened the door to, you know, mentioning Don Jameson. I'm a huge, you know, my great loves in life in the art world or, or music, film, and comedy. Uh, do you have uh, do you have favorite stand-up comics or anything you've seen recently that... I, I, like, I, like, I, like, I like comedy. Yeah, I like comics. I like stand-up. I like, I, you know, back in the day, I used to love uh, Richard Pryor. was fantastic. Yes, yes. You know, uh, Eddie Murphy was fantastic back in the day as well. Um, yeah, I like, I like some of the English comedy. It was a bit bawdy, you know, a bit like... Uh, a bit tongue-in-cheek, a little bit. Mm-hmm. Not, wouldn't be tolerated these days. But yeah, I, I like it. You know, I like the. Um, I'm a big fan of uh, stand-up. I think it's quite difficult to do that. You know, it's a bit like rock and roll, isn't it? Being a stand-up comedian. Yeah. It's that same sort of, uh, you know, working with the audience and getting some reaction. And putting your uh, your you know the authenticity of kind of putting yourself out there. And you know, leaving something on the stage for people—that's yeah. Well, a lot of comedy like that is, is storytelling, you know, and uh, people relate to it because they see themselves in those situations, and uh, you know, it's storytelling. And, and I suppose that's what rock music is really in a lot of ways. You know, whether it be um, you know Highway to Hell or you know Princess of the Night's a story, isn't it? So um, yeah, I, I see a lot of. Uh, you know, a lot of similarities between being a stand-up comedian and being a rock and roll singer, basically. British humor uh, had a lot of impact in terms of shaping my own comedic sensibilities as a kid because we used to get um, MTV would show at, you know, two in the morning on Saturday nights or something like that, uh, old episodes of The Young Ones when I was a kid. And Oh, yeah. My brother and I used to tape it on the VCR, and I would watch. I would watch the young ones, you know, while eating my cereal, about to go to school every morning, and it was still relatively uh, obscure. It, you know, it, it showed me like you know, I'm growing up in Indiana, in the late '70s and early '80s, and it's uh, you know, it's showing me a whole different world. The young ones is right in our period. You know, that is when we were uh, our biggest and young ones. I think one of them was wearing a. I think he was wearing a Saxon shirt at one point. Yes. But we did ask, we did get asked to go on there. I think they had more to it on one week. They did. And they asked us to go on, but I think we were touring. We couldn't go on it, which was always a bit of a, a disappointment for me. Oh, yeah. I, you know, I was going to say um, Motorhead, Madness. Uh, there was a number of bands that I was introduced to yeah. through the young ones. That was the first time I ever heard Motorhead or anything like heavy metal was uh, yeah. seeing them play Ace of Spades in the living room of <laughs> the young ones. Uh, yeah, that's great. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, and of course today, uh, you know, you've got, uh, Ricky Gervais and Russell Brand and, you know, a lot of great, uh, well, it's all that zany stuff, you know, uh, you know, I mean, the young ones was totally over the top. Yeah. <laughs> utterly surreal. That's good. Yeah. I, I always totally think of- surreal. Yeah. In fact, my son, my son's in a band. And, uh, they, they, they live together in a house in Manchester, and uh, there's some similarities between their place and the young ones' house. <laughs> believe me, you know they're like, uh, you know, sort of student age, yeah. 20, 21, 22, and I go there. It's like, oh my god, you know, dishes on, dishes in the sink, being the. Like, you know, they go buy new plates instead of washing up their old ones. So, yeah, it's, uh, you know, <laughs> very, uh, you know, that student flat thing. So, yeah, yeah they've got their new album out um, soon as well. So it's a bit of a, a twin thing for me and my son. Nice. They're, I think their album comes out at the beginning of March. 
I'll have to look out for that. I'll have to put that in the show notes for this episode. Yeah, yeah. I make it fix. Um, yeah, it's good. I always think about that scene where uh, Neil Neil is in the bath and uh, reaches down and, and feels something and then pulls up a bicycle and says, oh, my bike, I've been looking for that. <laughs> yeah, totally Student zany. house, yeah. yeah. Um, when was your last encounter with Metallica boys, of course? Uh, you know, and, and I would include Dave Mustaine in there because I know uh, Dave got up and played Denim and Leather with you at a festival, I think. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've talked to Dave, uh, Dave a few times, uh, you know, by, by email. Uh, I mean, he told me he, he got cancer before, um, you know, before anybody knew. So I, I do talk to him quite a bit. Not particularly, you know, I'll send him an email every sort of uh, month or so. I don't think I've got Lars's email. I've got his phone number. I don't think he'd, he'd, he'd appreciate me sort of like stalking him. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think the last time we sort of got together was, uh, again, a festival, I think. Um, I was going to sing with them at Nebworth. Mm. Uh, but my son um, got uh, got uh, some disease. I can't remember what he got, uh, but he got a rash on his body, and um, I had to go back basically, uh, so I didn't get to sing with him. But I think maybe um, I think it maybe maybe two or three years ago at the festival, last time we got together. Nice, definitely. And what are the, what are those conversations like these days? I would imagine a lot of you know, kids and families. And... Well, it's always about the eight. It's always mm. about the eight, basically. <laughs> <laughs> it's always about the eight old days, really. Because I've been, you know, Metallica come from the eighties. You know, people think they're, you know, a modern band, but you know, they were they were gigging. You know, that was their second gig, I think, mm-hmm. when they played with the, the, the whiskey. So you know, they they've been around since the eighties. You know, they're just obviously younger than we were. Um, but uh, you know the musical generation they were a different musical generation than we were you know they were sort of, I suppose they were 10 years different uh, musically so um, I think what they've done with the music and the songs that they've written has made a fantastic impact on uh, on the music business and, and a lot of a lot of people's lives you know absolutely and you know, and it, it's thanks to them, a lot of bands, uh, Saxon, Diamond Head, um, Budgie. You know, a lot of bands that the Misfits that I discovered uh, through being a Metallica fan, and then became a fan of of so many of these other great bands. You know, by studying uh, uh, it, the bands they celebrate. A bit, it's a bit wacky with when when I've played with them because because they haven't covered any Saxon songs. Um, you know, we, I can't get up there and play a song that they've covered that that I wrote. So, um, you know, I suppose when I play with uh, Metallica, it's just on the fact that we influenced them. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but like I say, you know, it's all right. They can play and that'll be fine. And like you said, there's still time. And I think they've they've uh, amassed enough covers at this point. Never too late. To do, well, I mean, and they've got then I was actually, I was actually thinking of doing a cover on my solo album of a Metallica song. But I thought it might be a bit over the top if I did that. Well, but I did uh, a track by Wishbone Ash, which uh, I'm sure the Metallica boys, uh, you know, remember and used to listen to anyway. Well, you know, not only did Motorhead cover a Metallica song, they they did it twice and won a Grammy for one of them. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, it's not a bad idea. <laughs> That's not a bad idea. Yeah, I thought it was funny that Motorhead uh, chose to cover Whiplash because Whiplash sounds an awful lot like the Ace of Spades. <laughs> it is, yeah. And, you know, um, uh, Second Destroyer sounds a bit like Pound of Glory as well. But, mm-hmm. yeah, you know. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah, oh, they'll be the first to the way around, man. Hey. <laughs> but that's how influences go, you know. I mean, that's, uh, that's, why, that's why bands, you know, they... They, they love a certain type of music, and then you take it and change it. And you can hear those influences in there, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, I hear, hear Saxon influences in a lot of American bands who were around in the 80s, uh, you know, honing their, 
uh, songwriting craft. Mm-hmm. You know, Motley Crue, all, all those bands. I, I hear a lot of uh, Saxon influences there. Absolutely. You know, and I always, I always say that all the, the, uh, all the great bands, you know, you know, are just kind of a combination of your influences. And then through kind of the prism of your own life experience, I think that's where all the but when great we've stuff met, comes from. Met, uh, you know, we've met bands like Poison, you know, Cinderella, Dokken, and every one of those bands were huge Saxon and Maiden fans mm-hmm. in the eighties, in mm-hmm. the early eighties. And uh, you know, the the English music, the British music, influenced those bands. There's no doubt about it. Massively, uh, sound, and image, the attitude influenced them as yeah. well. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you know. You have the song Denim and Leather, and Denim and Leather is <laughs> what all of those bands began wearing. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So. It's yeah, well, well, cheers, and yeah, thanks for thanks for coming on, and uh, have a good My show tonight. Ready now. I suppose you'll be having lunch. You'll be having lunch soon. Uh, indeed. Yeah. You're yeah, soon. I'm having my dinner, and you're having lunch, so that goes. <laughs> well, great. Yeah. Well, well cool. thank, thanks so much, and uh, it was a massive pleasure, a huge honor. Uh, very happy to have you on, and uh, yeah, hope to see you uh, here in California sometime. Yeah, it'd be great. I mean, we're looking forward to it. We love touring America, and uh, we're going to try and get back there as soon as possible. And uh, if I come with the solo, um, come with the solo album, it'd be great to play the whiskey. Indeed. That would be amazing. Yeah, I get loud up drumming. School of Hard Knocks. I will, come on. I will be there, so <laughs> that's a promise. <laughs> yeah, it's cool. All right, then, mate. Speak to you later. Thanks so much, Biff. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Biff Byford of Saxon. Be sure to check out past episodes of Speaking Destroy and check out our sister podcast as well, including No Prize from God, conversations about belief, unbelief, and everything between, featuring guests like Satir from Satyricon, Nurgle from Behemoth, Dwid Hellion of Integrity, Maddie Mullins of Memphis Mayfire, Ryan Clark of Demon Hunter, Sister Kate of the Sisters of the Valley, and many more. Also check out Pop Curse, musicians talking movies, movie stars talking music. Speaking Destroy is part of the Pop Curse Podcast Network. You guys have been great, and I've been Ryan J. Downey.